Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. MotoGP 2023 testing has begun. By the time you listen to this podcast, the secret bit will be over. The three-day shakedown at Sepang and the real business with all the race riders on track will be about to start. This is Matt B, your winter stand-in test rider host, I guess is the best way to describe me at the moment, um, with Simon Patterson and Valentin Horinci. Simon, as we record this, you're sat in a car, so I'm assuming you're just going to set off and drive to sepang at any minute uh not quite but not too far away yeah um we fly on tuesday morning so uh dublin doha doha kuala lumpur but at least the good thing about going to sepang is that you get off the plane at kuala lumpur international airport and the circuit is literally 30 seconds from the entrance to the airport so not too bad of a commute to start the season yeah and that'll only be commute number one of about 40 that you'll do (laughs) with between planes and yeah, vans it, like. it'll be like flight it's it's like flight number one of 50 through doha <laughs> because that seems to be the place for everyone yeah you, you've you've got more chance of seeing a MotoGP rider in doha airport these days than you do of seeing them in the MotoGP paddock fair enough uh, we were joined last time by the airport announcer and by brad binder's parrot but unless val's got any surprises lined up from audio files i think this one should be a fairly smooth just passing traffic and us three arrangement this time i mean i can i can look around like the, the only surprise i can offer is that you introducing yourself as the winter testing stand-in has made me realize that being matthew you are in fact matteo bayoko the lesser known <laughs> aprilia test rider so yeah i was gonna say yeah I, I was about to ask if you were an official test rider or a shakedown <laughs> test rider uh, well, let's see how the shakedown goes. See if, uh, see if like the, the I have not heard of the Aprilia guy. I have to admit, I, I am not as diehard MotoGP as you two. But I don't think I should lose too many points for not knowing who that is, who Aprilia have wheeled out for the shakedown. Because when I saw that name on the list, it completely baffled me. That's completely unacceptable. He's a staple of MotoGP shakedowns and Aprilia test work. Matteo Bayaka also did a full World Superbike season at some point, I believe probably a regular in the italian series although I'd, I'd have to go looking up the exact results to be sure if if we do want an animal special guest in the podcast there is a squirrel just walking past i could go and ask if he wants to join us <laughs> we do have simon's wife maddie in the back of the car as well but uh we'll see, see if she can resist the temptation to join in too much as, as the podcast goes on so we're talking about uh, pre-season testing obviously as this is the week of it like i say the shakedown will have happened by the time you've heard this we won't know a great deal about that because it's taking place with even greater secrecy than usual in a in a development that has got quite a few journalists quite angry simon actually not as angry as other journalists it seems for one so over this but then from friday the real um simon you you, you want to be an angry journalist after all don't you no, no, no. There's a there's a 21 round season. I'm not complaining about not having to go for three extra days of testing this yeah. year. No, that is absolutely fair. So from Friday though, we'll get to see all the bikes. We'll get to talk to the riders. Things will be a bit more normal. Um, so on this podcast this week, we're going to look at the jobs list facing the five remaining manufacturers. You know what do they need to achieve this week in the first of the two major preseason tests? What will be ominous for each of them if by uh, Sunday night in Sepang they haven't made any progress with it? When we do a kind of team-by-team piece, whether it's for a podcast, video, or article, you've always got the dilemma of do you start with the good teams first or do you like start at the back and hope you keep everyone's attention? Um, I'm going to start at the back, so we're going to go for, for um, hapless backmarker Repsol Honda to, uh, to start the list, which is still... An absolutely bizarre thought that I cannot get used to the fact that Honda is last in the Manufacturers' Championship uh, from last season. So, Simon Fell, what Honda has a lot of things to fix. What are its priorities going into to this week at Sepang? I mean, if if we, we should know pretty early on in the test what state Honda are in from the body language of their riders, to be perfectly honest, especially Mark Marquez, because he was a pretty easy-to-read book at Valencia 
when they when they brought a new bike for him and he slated it essentially to the media um in in probably stronger words than i've ever heard mark marquez refer to a honda um he really wasn't happy with the progress that they'd made leading up to that initial work on the bike um he'd have given them a long list of things that need to be made better over winter and I would imagine that if if there hasn't been significant progress in those, he won't be shy in telling us again that you know that he's still not happy with it. They, it's it's kind of a case of where do you even start? Like the bike needs to improve everywhere. Um, it needs to be less aggressive. It needs to turn better. They need to have made a substantial step forward with their dynamics. Uh, th- there's just so much to do there that in theory it shouldn't be hard to make some improvements. You know everywhere because there's so many areas that need improving but yeah um they're definitely the team that's got the biggest task ahead of them and then complicating that is the fact that two out of their four riders are new to honda are new to v4 moto gp bikes um are new to a bike that isn't a beautiful easy to ride suzuki because that's the only machine they've ever known and Juan Mir and, and Alex Rins really aren't going to be too much help to Mark Marquez this week. Um, I think we're going to see someone who's very much um, me versus the world in Sepang. Yeah, I think ultimately the there's there is a job list for the Sepang test, but the the most important bits of the bits of the job will have already been either done or not done by the time they show up. Have they brought a thing that's different enough, evolved enough? And I would assume, honestly, I would assume aero-wise is what we're going to notice the most. Also because it's on the outside of the bike. So, yeah, I mean, obviously. But I think probably aero development is a bit that has been emphasized for all the Japanese factories. But obviously Honda among them. Um, Basically, the task list, there's one task. And that task is placate Mark. Mark uh, was reasonably diplomatic in Valencia, I would argue. Like he wasn't flat out or he was he wasn't flat out for the average person, but he was flat out for, for Mark, Honda company man and measured politician basically. And then his brother Alex basically gave the game away by by telling I think Gazetta della Sport that on the way back from the paddock when he and Mark rode rode home in, in, in a car together, uh, Mark basically didn't say a word. Wow was silently seething it told him that there were like that there weren't enough improvements and that's that i don't want to talk about it anymore uh so yeah basically it's the start of a two-year deal so there's still plenty of time but already mark knows the words he's saying and the words he's been saying are if honda doesn't make this better pretty soon i'll start looking around for other options for my future there's not that much time, and this would be, you know, to, to, to start the season off on the right foot, I think he has to see, like, basically an array of stuff, absolutely massive coffers of bits, maybe another swing arm made by a different manufacturer that isn't Honda uh, in, in Malaysia, yeah. And we know that there was a change of management in the Marquez camp at the end of last season, and Emilio Alzamora is out, it seems like there's been a bit of a, with the new team that's now sort of doing, working with Marquez behind the scenes, it seems like we're seeing a bit more of an assertive Mark Marquez, just in how he's been tackling like social media and stuff over the, the winter break. Um, without reading too much into it, it, it seems like there's been a strategy shift and that's going to make life very difficult for Honda um, if he's you know willing to be loud and vocal for the next 18 months about where their bike's at. I mean, the bike's obviously not not hopeless. Like this this new concept that they introduced, like it it led a bunch of laps in Qatar to start last season. It was occasionally something, and there's there's no doubt in my mind that whatever they bring to Sepang and whatever they bring to to the season opener in Portmao, uh, Mark will drag that thing to a win or two, to a bunch of lead laps, to bothering a bunch of the front runners, even in races where he doesn't maybe look so strong. They can't get by on that anymore if Mark himself is unsettled, if that makes any sense. Now, as for the specifics, I think the the takeaway from the Valencia test was that the front feeling was a bit better with the new stuff they brought and the rear feeling was a bit worse. So disbalance and I guess closer to 
the bike that it used to be, the bike that Mark used to be so successful on. But that's still not, arguably not the ideal route forward. You want it to be a major step forward compared to what even you had in the past in terms of rideability. I think that much is clear. And I don't, I think Mark, as the miracles he can do on bikes that are questionable to ride, I think after the injury travails he's had, he'd appreciate, you know, he'll see, he'll look elsewhere in the grid and be like, yeah, I, I kind of want a sweet handling thing too. I can, I can do something on this. I don't have to risk limb every lap basically i've been through this done that these two years have not enjoyed them at all so three years now and, and then the other factor obviously that the confuses complicates all this is the mark marquez factor i think we're kind of expecting him to come back fit or at least you know close to it yeah. and we know in the past that a, a fully fit fully functional super talented mark marquez has been able to ride around problems and and part of last year in particular was that he wasn't in a shape to, to circumvent those problems, even when he tested this new bike at the end of last year, he wasn't fully fit. Um, so, you know, whether or not that takes some of the pressure off Honda is a question that we're only really going to know probably at the end of the three-day test when he's done three hard days of riding and, and is able to assess his own physical condition. That Marquez factor massively complicates not just Honda's situation now, but I feel that the whole route of, of where it's going where it's gone wrong over the last few years because like you say he could ride a bike that was more problematic more aggressive than anybody else but was that honda making that bike suit him was that what he needed to get the pace out of the bike or was that the bike get going off the rails handling and concept wise even back then him making up for it and of course when he was injured there was a lot of talk about how honda would now have to make a bike to suit other riders but it seems to have gone even further away it hasn't suited anybody and it stopped suiting marquez as well so it's, I, I find it quite hard to trace the wrong turning that Honda took and when it took it to get into this position. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's sort of, it's the same problem that has been highlighted over at, over at Yamaha with Fabio right now, where I think there might be some worries about the longer term repercussions of the fact that you have this guy who can ride this bike that's clearly changed and is no longer the all-rounder it used to be. I shouldn't say all-rounder because the top speed sucks, but you know what I mean? The all rounder in the sense that everybody could ride it. Everybody could get. Yeah, you, you could jump on it as a rookie. Yeah, yeah. you'd be fine. Whatever rookie you were, basically, you know, Johannes Arco, yeah. Jonas Folger. Have you seen Irene look pretty decent on it? So, you know, that's no longer that bike. Uh, but yeah, Honda's probably. I'm guessing in that in a similar situation, but with an offset of a few years. Uh, the last non-Marcus Honda rider to have sustained success on the bike relative to their talent level. And you could, you, could, you could make a few arguments there. You could go back to, you know, the good years of Danny Pedrosa, I guess. But even then, you could argue that he was underperforming relative to his previous years. You could go to Cal Crutchlow before the, before the shift in the bike that he didn't really like, that sort of slowly but surely wound down his career. You could go to Takanakagami in 2020, honestly, but there's nothing like there's nothing super convincing there. And yeah, and it's 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 an interesting situation because I don't know what the long-term strategy there is because Honda sort of circumstantially has lucked into a younger super talent in Juan Mir. And it's also imperative, starting with this test, to make sure that Mir has the direction he likes and the direction he wants going into the season and if that in any way shape or form clashes with mark's engine preferences for the engine freeze or whatever then you sort of have a little bit of a dilemma because you're not you're not the top performing manufacturer right now and in, in other sports when there's a mismatch between the level of the star and the level of the team the best move is usually to ship the star away and rebuild the team honda sort of already kind of tried to do that during the marquez injury and rebuild the bike to make it more, more versatile but it's you know you're not going to ship off marquez obviously that's not what i'm trying to say but it's i think there's a dilemma between the now of marquez and the future potentially of mir and, and there's a catch-22 that honda might find themselves in this weekend of you know if if the bike isn't that good but marquez is fully fit and he can ride it that's good for Marquez, but it's probably not going to be good for Alex Rins and Juan Mir. Whereas if Marquez isn't fully fit and the bike is still difficult to ride 
you know, where does that leave Mir? What do they have to do? It, it's a really, it's going to be really difficult to manage those two personalities. Um, you know, Juan Mir is a super, super talented writer. Um, he's, I honestly believe he's more talented than he's given credit for, even as a world champion. Um, and in theory, the Honda of old, at least, should really suit his style. Um, but you know, they've they've got this this situation that they're in right now, where they could end up with one unhappy rider and one world champion. They could end up with two guys fighting each other for the championship, or they could end up with everybody furious at the direction they're going in. And you know, that's going to be a really, really tough thing to balance to manage. It is remarkable that Honda has two world champions with so many titles between them in its ranks. A, a very, very good rider in Alex Rins. The overall Honda rider lineup is stronger than, gosh, for, for a long time, thinking about some of the fitness concerns that some of their very good riders have had over, over the recent half decade or so. But yeah, Val, I think your point about the dilemma Honda faces is absolutely spot on because it feels, particularly from what we're saying now, that this is the closest Mark Marquez has ever been to leaving Honda in, in his time in MotoGP so far. You would have to be very brave as Honda to go, nah, okay, he's probably going to quit. He's quite old. We need to put, we need to sort our future out and help the rider who we think will lead us forward, which is which is Mir, in theory, given their ages and their career positions. But yeah, Honda deciding that choosing a moment to stop listening to Marquez and prioritize someone else still feels unthinkable. Yeah, I just realized, you know, I, I'm the one who put forward this theory of Marquez, you know, being in the second part of his career and potentially not having that many front-running years left. Same birth year as me, so don't love that. Don't love the... <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, don't love that at all. But I've not been in a, in a huge motorcycle crash where I've mangled my arm. Yeah. So, you know, the, there's a different question of longevity. Also, I'm not a MotoGP rider. The average age of a MotoGP rider at this point is like 15 or something. So I, all the Marquez fans, I hope you forgive me for this line of thinking, which is not at all <laughs> intended to suggest that he is in some way bad now or past it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Like you don't know, but I think it's fair to say that the um, the peak of a journalist's career age wise, I'm really hoping is not as young as a MotoGP rider, because otherwise I'm a massive write off and have been for some years now. So uh, I think you know your personal Marquez comparison is is okay in this instance. Well, it's it's he, you know he came into MotoGP a decade ago, yeah. and MotoGP is a physically punishing sport, and crikey, he has punished himself physically in in that time. Um, it's fair to it's fair to say that. There will be there will come a time quite soon when he's towards the end of his his Grand Prix career, and also I'm fairly sure that Val can still podcast with uh, regardless of the state of his right humours. So you know th that helps. <laughs> uh, the other thing that that adds to the you know to Val's theory that that Honda maybe are potentially considering a move away from Marquez or at least could get their head turned away from Marquez is that the Sepang test will also see the first public appearance of their new technical manager Ken Koichi who is a refugee from the, the closed down Suzuki project he is someone that is that took Juan Mir to a world title at Suzuki as their project leader and now he becomes the guy building the bike at Honda so you know when he walks into the garage at the end of the day he's going to turn to the mere side of the garage first because that's the guy he knows yeah that that is going to help mere's case in building a bike that's you know maybe a little bit more mere friendly because his feedback is going to be the feedback that that ken knows how to translate i, I, I wouldn't be shocked if they got him even without the mere factor but that certainly that has to be a bonus yeah, uh, I, I don't think he came because of Mir, yeah. but I think it's a massive boost to Mir that he has come. What, 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 what it does concern me is that they didn't get Jean Mir's crew chief, Frankie Carcetti, which does like not because who they have in right now is better or worse. That's not the judgment I'm trying to make, but just because if you're like, if you're pot committed on a rider as like a major part of your future, future vision and potentially your future focal point, you, you know, you try to pull out like all the stops, I think, to make him as comfortable as as possible. And I don't know, maybe reading too much into that, but it's just, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing to wonder about. 
I mean, it, it, it's not just sort of comfortable emotionally. Um, you know, I know from speaking to Frankie Carchetti that when Mir first joined Suzuki, they, they literally spent the first three quarters of a season working on ergonomics and body position. You know, it's physical comfort as well, because and, and, that's a huge thing to Mir. Um, and, you know, you would think that starting that process from scratch with a new bike would have been a lot easier had Carchetti been there to influence it. So they, they have a lot of work to do this year, not just on developing a bike. That's, you know, that's why, like I said, at the, at the Open, um, I don't think Mir and Rins are going to be particularly useful to Marquez this week. Who's... Whose decision was it in the end that Carcetti wouldn't come with Mia? It seems like it was one made by Alberto Pooch, from what I can gather. Yeah, because like you say, that is a significant a significant power move in in a way, and yeah, one that has the potential to to prolong the acclimatization pro- process in a way that um, that isn't isn't ideal. And obviously, they've got two Suzuki riders. They've they've got a a, a key Suzuki technical person. If if you were Honda. I would have thought at the end of last season, you look at Suzuki and you go, okay, why didn't Suzuki win more titles? Mainly resources. We've got more resources. Let's just get as many of these people who now need a job into our struggling program. To not hire Carcetti because you had a crew chief in place and then to go switch around all the crew chiefs and send Paul Espagaro's crew chief off to the test team and to bring Takanakagami's crew chief, uh, Giacomo <laughs> yes. Godotti, in to be Mir's crew chief. Like, Why didn't you just hire Carcetti in the start? That that's the bit I don't understand. We should say because maybe not not all listeners have heard that Ramon Arin was supposed to be the the mere crew chief, right? And suddenly worked with him at the test in Valencia. Yeah, at the end and of now last suddenly year. he's heading up the test team, I believe. Or yeah, and which also you have to wonder what exactly happened there, and whether it's a whether it's an effort to lift up the test team potentially at the expense of maximizing Mir in his first season. Probably not. Like they wouldn't they wouldn't do that, but. You have to wonder what the longer term idea there was. And if that was ever a possibility, then indeed, why not just get Mir's guy? Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Okay, moving up the field then still feels bizarre moving up from struggling Honda onto, onto KTM. Um, I still have trouble working out what KTM lacks in MotoGP, given the occasions when KTM can look absolutely superb. So what does KTM need to do this week and this season to, to stop doing this win a bit, disappear a bit habit? In, in Brad Bender's words, uh, the way we stop the bike is key. I want more rear contact and more grip out of the corners, which more grip out of the corners is also on the wish list of every single MotoGP <laughs> rider, I think, in human history. But yeah, you know, bike stopping makes a bit of sense. The way he describes it is basically he feels he gets pushed into the corner and can't turn as fast or as V-like as he would like. Um, and it, according to Binder, it penalizes single lap performance more than more than race pace, which is reflected obviously in KTM's general form guide. How you fix that? I, I mean, if I knew, I, I'd have a job with KTM, I imagine, but yeah we we've talked about this at length during last season where ktm do this thing that it seems like they they try too hard to solve their problems by building new parts rather than trying to get the best out of the parts that they have and we thought that they'd kind of stopped doing that last year and they were they're trying to we're trying to evolve the bike more consistently rather than come with these big 
revolutions. And then we got to the team launch last week, and I think it was Pitt Byer admitted that, oh, yeah, our guys tried eight or nine different frames during last season. Wow. Yeah, that that isn't a healthy way for me. That isn't a healthy way to build a better bike. That's just overloading your riders with, you know, new parts and and something different to try and oh we have to start again we have to find another base setting um you know i wonder if maybe that's why we see these sort of peaks and troughs if that's because riders get a new part and we're not talking small parts we're talking like new frames new swing arms um riders get a new part they get a base setting they get a bit comfortable on it they have a good result oh it's time for a new frame again and you have to start that process from scratch um so you know for me the, if that's the racer riders having to do that in the middle of grand prix weekend workload as well that yeah 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 well that must be logistically almost they, impossible. they brought a they brought a new frame they, they even brought a new frame to the last round of the championship in valencia last year like that's how late on in the year this was happening it went well but you know it, it's a wild time to be rolling out new parts um so you know for me almost the, the biggest job that ktm or the biggest change that ktm could make this year would be to turn up import a Mao with a bike that they've tested on and say, right, this, this right here is our race bike now. Um, there might be an update after the summer break, but let's try and make this work. And and not, you know, let, let the race team lead the development of the bike for a little bit instead of letting the engineers lead the development of the bike. Yeah, apparently that new chassis for Valencia wasn't necessarily what they planned to use in 2023, which raises certain questions i guess maybe i misunderstood maybe it's the basis for 2023 but i think they also tried something completely different in the test after that or something to that effect so yeah you you don't want to drown your riders in in parts but also what the team manager francesca godotti said was pretty interesting what he said after after the launch during the media session he said that KTM's engineers and just the the whole setup, not like specific engineers, was too preoccupied with making sure things work as opposed to making sure they go fast, which if I read into that, I like that might be an extension of the whole trying too many new things. Like you just stick on a thing to see like it just works in concept and you don't really work on refining and maximizing it because then you have another new thing to try to see if that works then another thing, then another thing, and you just don't maximize the the equipment you have. But, you know, they're not, they're obviously not stupid people. Like, they're, they're incredibly smart people. And it's, you know, it's just working out that exact trade-off of bringing new stuff and getting the optimal setup and the optimal rider comfort for what you have. You know, that's not easy. You don't have a set time for that. And it probably, you know, it differs from, from bit to bit, from bike to bike, maybe even from, from rider to rider. Now, again, we're going to say aero here because there's been a, a lot of talk about the, the Red Bull, uh, was it Red Bull Tech Advanced Technologies Partnership. So I would not, would not be shocked if during the, um, during the shakedown, which by the time you're listening to this already has happened. So maybe I was completely wrong, but I would not be shocked if we see something quite intricate and interesting, or I would, I would certainly hope. How is someone like Jack Miller coming in from the way Ducati has worked recently, coming into that KTM habit and environment? How is he going to find his first proper, proper week with them this week, do you think? I mean, that's, you know, it's it's, it's an interesting question because ultimately only only Jack can say, and I'm, I'm not sure it'll relate to the, to the bike so much. The bike's not as good and he's going to need time adapting to it. So that's, you know, that's all fair and good. And I think everybody expects that. In terms of the surroundings, Miller has always looked fairly at home with Ducati, but there was also this occasional undercurrent of feeling like an like an outsider, or I guess I would the way I would describe it is I guess in like an Airbnb house guest or something. Um, just that, that it's a very like he's felt it's a very Italian setup that has now swapped him for an Italian rider to make an all Italian lineup, whereas KTM is a place that aggressively hunted after Miller uh, is bringing in his crew chief is like making a real play here even while it has a, a star rider in in Brad Binder so that'll that'll probably help and I I think he might he might enjoy that bit a little bit more just because he'll feel more wanted not that Ducati didn't want him but just I get the feeling that probably that'll make a slight difference at KTM 
Although, you know, at the same time, I think Johan Zarco was plenty wanted at KTM and that went awful immediately. So, eh. Fortunately for Jack Miller, unlike, unlike most Airbnb guests, he doesn't have to pay for any damages he does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think maybe there might be a bit of relief in the binder side of the garage at Jack Miller coming in for the same reason that uh, Fabio Quattararo and his then teammate... Uh, Maverick Vinales were so happy when Yamaha announced that Cal Crutchlow was going to be the new test rider because they knew that Crutchlow was going to come in. I think there was a feeling at the time that everyone at Yamaha had become very comfortable uh, and they were delighted that someone as aggressive as Crutchlow was going to come in and be happy to tell engineers that they didn't know what they were talking about and they were wrong and they needed to do things differently. Uh, and there might be an element of that with Miller where he comes, you know, he's he's maybe prepared to be more vocal in the box in the tech meetings and the you know the planning sessions um and and tell people the way he wants things done that you know if we are in a position where the engineers are leading the team it might not be a bad thing to have a loud aussie that's happy to to tell them to shut up and do what he wants every now and then another another important thing and i think it's you know it's going to be like that for most factories with satellite teams. I think it's a very general observation, but specifically because of what uh, Pitt Meyer said coming into this, he said uh, that, you know, gas gas's status, you know, Tech 3 gas gas's status is now supposed to be elevated to what it already was, I think, on in, in terms of the words that, that have been said. Like it's supposed to be not even a younger brother, but a, a completely equal partner because it you know it represents a different brand even if it's a brand under the same umbrella and there was there was some discontent from various tech 3 ktm riders over the last few years and when i say various i think i mean mostly i'd say danilo petrucci and primarily remy gardner about the speed at which updates trickle down to the tech 3 side of things um, and i would not be surprised if that was part of the reason why miguel Oliveira decided not to sign up for for the gas gas deal and I would, would it sounds like KTM deeply regrets letting Oliveira go also because I would imagine they saw his first test in the Aprilia and went, oh, Jesus, oh, no, which I, th- I think much of MotoGP might have might have felt that way. But yeah, I think because Pit Byer said that the new developments and the, the order of new developments will come based on the championship ranking which is a very bold thing to say. I think they need to set the tone for how this whole thing is going to work basically right away. And they will obviously, even though Paul is still going to be finding his feet on the new KTM, they will need to involve him in in the process a lot and work out a good way for all three experienced parts of their lineup to to coexist. Yeah, And if we're in a world now where that is the case and KTM have to bring four of everything at the same time rather than two of everything at the same time it means there won't be a new chassis during the season because it's just simply not possible I should say I think Augusto won't mind I don't think it'll make a huge difference to his season whether he's riding this year's bike last year's bike whatever he just needs each yeah. time so yeah but essentially that, that does give them a kind of three-pronged equal-ish factory lineup spread across two brands with with Pole coming back and with the, we've, we've talked a bit about the outside input that Miller coming for Ducati, Paul having had his holiday at um, a miserable holiday. If we're talking about bad Airbnb holidays at Repsol Honda, um, at least that is a bit more ha- a bit more data about how other teams operate and and develop their bikes as well. In theory, but I I think that was also the plan with Petrucci, and it just didn't work at all. So yes, this is true. I did think that when you mentioned Petrucci in passing, that the the parallel for someone coming from the Ducati factory lineup into the KTM fold is is pretty poor. Now, Miller, for everything that went wrong in his two factory season at Ducati in terms of not becoming the team's kind of talisman and title hope, he was more successful than Petrucci was in, yes. in the factory team and yeah. and is a very different character as well. But there is that slight doubt of actually when people have come across from other brands to KTM, it's been, been rubbish, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say my, my Petrucci analogue is more Paul than yeah. Miller because of the sort of the the fact that he's in the in the other team and you'll want Paul is is great for your program he really is he's you know he's going to bring the right attitude if you involve him if you stop involving him if he feels left out in any way 
then the results are just not going to be there. I think we've seen that very much in the second half of his second Honda season when the writing was on the wall and every both sides realized that that was it. Like, I, I don't think Paul will argue with the, the description that they, he just saw at the contract. And I'd say stayed healthy, but he actually crashed a fair few amount of time. So he, he was trying, but... It was, it was, it was months of um, appalling results and spectacular quotes about the situation, yeah. which from our point of view was, I wouldn't say entertaining, but quite, quite useful. Um, moving on from KTM, Val, you mentioned how Oliveira took to the Aprilia a minute ago. Let's, let's talk about Aprilia, which I think is a, a fascinating prospect going into the season, which really could go either way. We're going to find out maybe as early as this week. Was last year the fairy tale? Other, t- you know, Aprilia capitalising at other teams being in transitionary states, and we've seen this wonderful title bid, but it was a one-off, and now Aprilia will turn return to a normal level, not as bad as it used to be by any means, but not, you know, not in championship contention. Or was last year the start of the real Aprilia MotoGP story, and the sky's the limit now? So I, yeah, I must admit I'm perhaps a little sceptical, and I can see it. Yeah, no. I can see last year being perhaps the peak, perhaps where the, the beginning and end of the fairy tale. But what do you guys think? Well, the, the part that worries me is that we saw Prilia last year already pioneer two major aero developments, which is the uh, the ground effect side fairing and the ugly rear wing type thing on the on the seat unit that other manufacturers have already borrowed, and that all of them will have a chance to have their own stab at with. I imagine versions that were thought up in the off-season, and if anybody's advanced far enough with them, they'll probably try them out in, in these upcoming shakedown and test. Which, like, it feels that on those two, I guess Aprilia didn't really strike while the iron is hot. We don't know how big the impact is of those things, but it looks like they look visually very important. They look important. Like my my hunch is that those those things, if you exploit them really well, can can be can be the difference makers. Which, yeah, I might be completely wrong on that, obviously. Um, the big thing for me with Aprilia is, and this is, I'm going to retread the sort of the tech three points a little bit, apologies, but it's, I think it's really important. They have to figure out a way, the ideal way to work with a new RNF team, because this is also the track to do it. They, I think while Miguel Oliveira and Raul Fernandez continue to learn the bike, they have to point those two guys at last year's Sepang test. And at last year's Sepang race weekend, Aprilia was really good last year in the Sepang test. And it was, oh, I'm trying to think of a, of a nice word that's not going to get us an explicit rating on, on your podcast platform of choice. So I'm just going to say really bad, really bad weekend, race weekend at Sepang. And it didn't sound like there was a full understanding of why. So if I were Aprilia, I'd work extremely closely with the hand-me-down bikes that they've given to to RNF to understand what the limitation there was, how it translates to the 2023 machine, all that noise, that would be a very important work in, in my mind because they they really should not have another late season collapse like like last year. For me, the, the most important thing that the new Satellite Aprilia team can do at this test and all season is just do lap after lap after lap. Um, I think what the factory team need more than anything else out of their new satellite and in, you know, and potentially even what they need out of their new bike as well is just data. They just they need more information. They need more more examples of how to go around corners and how to accelerate and how to brake. Um, the bike itself needs, you know, from, from what we saw last year of the strengths and weaknesses of the bike, technically it just needs enough of an evolution to keep it up to date. It needs to, you know, not concede anything to any of the others, but it doesn't necessarily need to get any better anywhere because it's not a bike with a, a massive weakness anywhere. You know, we're we're, we're going to talk about another manufacturer in a few minutes who have one thing and one thing only to fix. Aprilia doesn't have that problem by any stretch. Um, but, you know, th- there was that absolute collapse at the end of last season. And it seems to me, and it seems some listening to them that you know they believe that it's because they just don't have enough experience with it all of those poor results came at circuits that the bike had never been raced at before because of covid and because of losing all our asian overseas rounds and everything um the 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 best thing about 
having RNF this year is that they double the amount of input on track every single day. The the less the bike changes over the off season, the more useful the RNF data will be. I think I think exactly. we, can, we can say as much, even if obviously you can't transpose what Oliveira does onto Vinales and onto Espargaro and stuff like that. And there's every chance that the worst riders will just look at him and like, we don't ride like that. So that it doesn't really matter to us. But they they sounded pretty amenable to the to the opportunity provided by extra data. So as long as the bike isn't well, we use the word revolution a lot, but I guess as long as it isn't a revolution, it can be really, really useful to have the extra data. More than anything else, talking to smart Ducati riders uh, who have a huge amount of data to look at, it almost it's not that it doesn't matter that someone else rides the bike differently, but the more different inputs you have, the better. Because, you know, um, I think maybe even when we had him on the podcast last season, Luca Marini said that the best thing about having eight Ducatis in the grid is that there's always someone faster than you at yeah, basically every point. True. You know, you're only going to be fast at one eighth yeah. of the corners because someone else is always going to be quicker than you everywhere else. Um, and if it's just, you know, not necessarily trying to copy someone else's riding style, but just being able to see how they do things a little bit differently. Um, all of that's going to be super helpful for Aprilia. And it's, you know, having a satellite is completely new territory for them as well. It's it's a, it's it's going to revolutionize how they work, having so much extra data all of a sudden. The fact that Aprilia has risen as far as it has without a satellite team actually is, is very impressive given the, like you say, the, the data disadvantage it was at. And I think as it did that, that late season collapse last year, I, did, I felt more and more like... Everything was just coming too soon for Aprilia. It's come from the very, very back. It's come from a position of having one competitive rider and a series of very angry teammates struggling on that bike to to where it is now. And obviously, if 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 you're going to predict what might happen to a team that was suddenly in title contention from that background, you would say probably won't sustain it all season, probably feel the pressure, probably start making some mistakes, probably not keep up the progress as much as Ducati in particular and, and Yamaha will probably tail off. And that's why I think this year, even next year, is going to be more representative of what Aprilia is really capable of now. And having having RNF to feed in data as well um, will definitely really help with that. I still got a slight nagging doubt over how much you can read into what the bike's doing with the rider lineup it's got. Um, I'd, I'd exclude um, <laughs> Aprilia's uh, ch- title-chasing hero of last year, who I think is in the exact right place in his career to be thriving on that bike. But I, I still feel like you don't know what you're going to get with Vinales from week to week. Oliveira, they've, si- they've signed a rider who at KTM was very much like that as well. And Fernandez is, well, we, we know the potential to be superb is there, but there was basically no evidence of that in his first MotoGP season so you've got three peaky question marks and one rider who's been excellent for you but is definitely not in the early part of, of their career now no it's it, it's true it's not, that that is accurate obviously that when we talk about the bike and the team and all that ultimately such a big part of the week-to-week performance is the lap time the rider can do it's Honestly, it's really, really easy to forget, but that is the case. But there's just, you know, at least having three peaky riders is better than having one peaky rider. Or no and, peaks. Yeah, or no peaks. That That is correct. No peaks like, you know, with, unfortunately, Alicia's previous teammates, more or less. Yeah. Of course, you know, ideally, Aprilia would have Marc Marquez on the bike and then it would know what's up. Given what we knew pre-Aprilia about its current lineup, you have to say the bike's amazing. And that I don't know if that's like really harsh on Aleish and Maverick and Miguel. I don't know. Maybe 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 the rider is the 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 final point of the piece of the puzzle. But at the same time, I'm still a firm believer that in the right circumstances, Maverick Vinales can be MotoGP champion. He just needs. 20 rounds of preseason testing that all score points. And yeah, then, <laughs> then he wins the championship with three rounds to spare. I do think it would have been a lovely place for one of the Suzuki riders to end up. I think we would have learned a lot about Aprilia. If, yeah. um, and it never it never looked like happening, obviously, but um, that, that, would have been, that would have been fascinating. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. 
Sizes can vary from brand to brand and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best. And that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. So two teams to go, last year's two title contenders. Um, we did talk a lot about Yamaha on last week's podcast after their launch, so we might not go into too much depth um, with Yamaha right now. But I think really, like you've hinted, Simon, there's one question for Yamaha really as well. One and a half, there's an engine question and a number two rider question. I mean, if, if you're a Yamaha chassis engineer, you've probably had a relatively easy winter in that there's definitely no pressure being sent your way back at headquarters in Iwata because it's all being put on the Engli- on the engine department and the aerodynamics department. They have to make the bike faster. They have to make it accelerate quicker. They have to make it go quicker in a straight line. And everything else is secondary to, to those two functions. Um, it would have been a few years ago that that was all in the engine department. That has changed a little bit with the, the boom in aerodynamics in MotoGP because those two things are now complementary. Um, but, you know, Yamaha are also a Japanese factory and traditionally the Japanese factories haven't taken aerodynamics too seriously. So I would imagine that their their new Italian-led engine development plant has been very, very busy. We know that they misstepped in Valencia by bringing an engine that wasn't as good as the one that they'd previously used in the Misano test. So the first job that they've got in Sepang is to convince Fabio Quattararo that they're back on the right path a la Misano. And then the second job is just to have a bike that, that doesn't get blitzed in the streets at Sepang, which, you know, Sepang is a good circuit to be going to for this test with the job that they have to achieve. Yeah, I mean, you have to do within the parameters that are available. So you have to do correlation testing on whether you really understood where the speed went in the Valencia test, what the sort of what the wrong settings were, what what the problem was. But at the same time, I think you have to go into the test and I imagine during the off season, or it's how I would have done it, I guess, you, you probably had to work with the assumption that the speed will be there. And you had to do all that, like you had to do the arrow work with the assumption that that arrow is going to have to, that, you know, that arrow can be draggy enough because you're going to have more top speed to, to, to compensate for it. Because if the top speed isn't there, if there's something fundamental which it doesn't sound like it but if there is the season's done so you can just chuck everything into the trash and give up give your <laughs> give your place on the grid to someone else i mean, that's that's needlessly defeatist but you, you know what i mean i think it, it sounds like yamaha is fairly confident that what it what it has there it's legitimate and therefore i think the, the most important work will be one verifying as much as you can that that's going to be consistently there and two working to the assumption that it's going to be consistently there and retooling whatever tools you have to to make sure you get the most out of it. And yeah, I think Aero is probably a big one. Um, looked like in testing, they had sort of a slightly different wing setup, which um, I, I genuinely don't remember if we've seen it anywhere else, but it's it's very like distinctively different. You could tell because the, the usual Yamaha wings are the sort of the mustache below the main bulk of the front fairing and this one is like the Yamaha whatever or the Ducati style looped sunglasses basically as a terrible description 
That is absolutely <laughs> awful. But I, I hope somebody out there can visualize, like at least if at least 10% of people are like, oh, I understand what he's talking about, then I, I succeeded. Now, I have to say, actually, for, for a podcast description of aerodynamics, like in, we used to talk about aerodynamics in Formula One coverage and people talk about Coke bottles and tea trays and stuff. And it's like, well, I, I don't quite visualize that on a car. Looped sunglasses and Yamaha moustache have given me a much more visual indication of, of MotoGP and, uh, and aerodynamic development than uh, you'd normally get on a podcast. So, yeah, I think we should just compare it to facial features for the, for the entire season. I'm looking forward to... Yeah, Ducati ponytail, Aprilia sideburns all appearing. We've got something here. <laughs> yeah, basically, I'd say an arrow blitz that you can now afford if you have the extra power. That's how I would describe it. Because if you if you don't have the power, then presumably all those extra bits just kill you on the straight. Yeah, that's that's that would be my number two item on the checklist. Not a lot of circuits on the calendar these days where you can get away with just having a, f- a flowing bike that is good around corners and the, the straights don't matter really. It's most places, pa- Phillip Island to Assen. Yeah. If, if you're very, yeah, I was about to say if, if we had a dream championship that just alternated between Phillip Island and Assen, Yamaha would win every championship for the next bazillion years, and no one would have wings in their MotoGP bike. And honestly, they were really disappointing at Phillip Island last year, so I'm not even entirely convinced about that anymore. And I think even at Assen, it looked like they'd lost half a step. I think those two races were skewed a little bit by those being the particular times when the Quattararo just realised his championship situation and the threats to it and, and went slightly crazy. But uh, yeah, I do see your point. Let's let's quickly discuss Ranko Morbidelli before we move on from Yamaha as well. I I feel like... I hate the thought of saying that, you know, give up on Morbidelli because he's a rider I've got so much respect for and I think was capable in 2020 of, of like we said last week not just being a good rider but he could blitz a race when in the right form so much about him to admire as a person uh, Yamaha is going to know quite quickly if this is going to work or not and I th- all the evidence so far is it isn't so yeah is some of is some of pre-season spent phoning, phoning up alternative riders one little bit of uh, good news for Franco Morbidelli fans that we've got in the last few days uh, so a few of the guys headed to Portimao last weekend because the world superbike guys were there testing and took their their standard road bike training bikes to go and ride on um we know that you know the sort of the headline news from that has been jorge martin being like three and a half seconds slower than alvaro bautista's like qualifying tire flat out lap record attempt on the factory reigning world superbike machine which is pretty impressive uh Paco Bagnaia was there. He was within a second of Martin's time, but splitting the difference between the two was Franco Morbidelli and a Yamaha R1, which has to be good news for Lynn Jarvis and Mao Marigali back at, at Factory Yamaha headquarters to know that, you know, he might maybe, maybe this MotoGP season is going to be another bum one for him, but this, the pace is there if he's, you know, running, at least able to run with, with Bagnaia on a road bike. Not not the first time this has come up, and this is completely off topic. This this is not the first time we've heard about Jorge Martin taking a road bike and doing some absolutely insane bonkers lap time, yeah. isn't it? So <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and you know the we um we know that that World Superbikes essentially have a qualifying tire that's only good for for six or eight laps. Um, I theorized on Twitter that Martin was probably in something much more standard issue and i got a reply from his dad to say that he was using a medium compound michelin endurance racing slick <laughs> so you know we're, we're not talking qualifying tires no, here absolutely. and and it wasn't a v4r which is ducati's headline bike because the the v4r is slightly too close to the specs of the MotoGP team so to avoid falling foul of the rules they run the v4s which is the the middle spec um which makes it even more impressive so if he gets bounced out of MotoGP, there's a job there. But that's obviously a joke because Jorge Martin is not getting bounced. Yeah, he, he will join the, the, the honorable lineup of, uh, you know, Chaka, Biagi and Bautista of, of going to Superbikes and kicking ass. Yeah, let, let's be clear. I'm joking. This is not happening. <laughs> yeah, you can see him moving teams, but not championships at this point. But when you said about Morbidelli looking good on a road bike, I was thinking, well, there you go, Yamaha. Series and seat swap with... Um, him between him and, and top rack, rack Gasly Otto, that's a, 
solves a problem, maybe. Interestingly, though, like... The thing about Morbidelli, which is interesting, is you said there was no light at the end of the tunnel. He really liked the new chassis that they brought at the end of the season. Like, he really... uh, In in Valencia and for the test. Uh, He was really, really hype about it to the point where he wasn't... Like, where Fabio was a bit worried about the weird thing happening with the engine. Frankie was like, yeah, I tried it. Didn't seem to have the extra speed, so I just said screw it they're gonna go fix it whatever i'm just gonna run on this new chassis that i really really like and the the base was all right so it's just there have been there, there were too many times last season when we'd get happy friday frankie and then it, it would be the part of the weekend that counted and they couldn't couldn't put it together still so i, I think it'll be a, i think it'll be definitely better for sure but you know the question is of course how much better and how much better he he needs to be but also because of how much noise came out of the Yamaha side of the garage that it's imperative for there to be another rider in the lineup who can provide data for Fabio and help him progress in weekend. It is then imperative for the test to make sure that the two riders that you have, Fabio and Frankie, head into the season on similar stuff and both comfortable. They're not going into some different directions where one can't help the other. I would say that's that's a fairly major priority. And Maybe you could sort of dangle a new contract in front of Frankie and tell him, look, if this season you can go into a role where you sort of really seriously help out Fabio and snipe results where you can. I don't know, too early to think about that. But He's got to be seven riders worth of data, effectively, though, hasn't he, to, <laughs> yes, to, to yes. offer Quattro what, what Bagnar and Bautista now get at, uh, at Ducati. Did you Banya and Bautista? I did, didn't I? Yeah. About- <laughs> what, what happened? Did I miss something? I was I was on shift today. The, yeah, another, another another seat swap between Superbike and MotoGP. Banya and ba- Bastianini, obviously. Gosh. Um, speaking of Ducati and its lead writer Alfaro Bautista, let's let's do Ducati's MotoGP team to to round off. Now, I would say that the, the priority for Ducati going into this testing week is just don't mess about too much don't do what you did last year don't make the workload too complicated just go the bike works what do you want to refine on it so i think we know they'll have the 22 in sepang as well as the new bike and the way Gigi delinia put it was it won't be a problem to discard some ideas which strikes me as a sort of like we, we have a bunch of things to bolt on we have some things to try but what we have as our 2022 bases, yeah, it's good enough. We're not in a big rush to reinvent the wheel, obviously, which which makes a lot of sense. Uh, the way Banyai was talking about it, it sounded like the big focus was shock, arrow, or at least it was through through last season. But it, it sounds like he he wants the fairing smaller and smaller. That's that's the way it sounds anyway. Uh, whereas I guess some other manufacturers could afford to to do a little bit more. I don't see why they would need to try a ton of things, but at the same time, they can afford to because they ended 2020 with a with a reasonable level of comfort with a package that that Banyai obviously had. Like he was basically supremely comfortable everywhere as long as the conditions were relatively straightforward. Based on everything we've seen so far, no one has made a substantial jump forward with their what we've seen 2023 bikes. Worst case scenario, if Ducati had to start the next season on the 2022 bike, they'd probably go into, you know, not much different in terms of championship favorite status as they are right now. So for me, basically the entire job of the Sepang test is don't mess it up. Um, they, they, you know, they just need to, they just need to keep the momentum rolling, not do anything stupid, not do anything madly radical, keep the riders happy and you know that bike is so good and in such a good position that it, it should be fairly easy to keep it going which, you know which is also why i'm saying arrow like take some of those stegosaurus wings take whatever evolution of them you've come up with try the aprilia t-wing on the seat unit try some more the ground effect arrow that they already had in in camo paints and the valencia postseason test just you know go for things that you can easily take on and take off to do basically lots of back-to-back testing see what sticks see what doesn't stick it's you know it's the finishing touches at this point i guess it's also very easy to let rest on your laurels and let let the competition catch up way too much i guess but they're in a position of strength they're in a position that every other manufacturing MotoGP would rather be in so but just maybe start bolting all those parts onto Johan Zarco's bike first yeah and 
keep keep your factory geo quite content with with where they are you know by all means experiment but but use zarko for the role that you know zarko's paid to do basically yeah, this is an obvious one i guess but make an ad do a bunch of practice starts and a bunch of running on heavy fuel yeah yeah like it's not as simple as it sounds because i still have flashbacks to the uh, yamaha maverick vinales years of maverick vinales doing heavy fuel running in practice starts over and over again on certain weekends (laughs) but at the same time you know what he did get better yeah there's still the occasional race where maverick vinales goes from fifth on the grid to 20 29th at the start of the opening lap and nobody really understands why but if you can afford to work on that extensively do it I mean, th- there is, uh, you know, something that we haven't mentioned in this podcast. There's maybe a bigger picture thing across all of this that, that leads on from that, that that's something that every manufacturer has to do at this this test is completely change how they prepare for races. Because... Fuel consumption? Well, we're not just fuel consumption. Everything about what we know about the format of a MotoGP race is going to change this season with the sprint races. You know, we we've got we've got fifty percent more points on offer this year for a race that will be a completely different format, and you know, gone will be the the twenty seven lap uh, race simulations because you know also they'll still be there, but you've also got to start doing like fourteen lap race simulations and you know figuring out how much fuel you do need in the tanks, and, and that will take some of the emphasis away from new parts for everyone throughout this test uh both in here in portimao as you know as we prepare for a really radically different season the the different tire pressure monitoring is obviously a factor you want to be completely on top of that's another one and the the front right height device being gone that's also another one so obviously maybe there's more even marginal gains in the stuff that you're able to adjust the best to than necessarily in the new bits that you bring i guess we'll find out even things like the whole weekend timetable changing to the extent it it has and you know what was fp4 you know yet that that equivalent session is now first thing in the morning at a time that is not conditions wise much use for simulating your race prep it's it's interesting in it's in formula one since sprint races were introduced every grand prix that's been a sprint race weekend has been a bit more interesting a bit more mixed up in a way that you couldn't really scientifically plot but it's like there's just been enough format disruption in the weekend to put everyone on the wrong foot slightly and it's mixed things up now now as we discussed many times f1 did the very sensible thing of just do it a couple of times a year try it out run just blanketing it across the entire championship so MotoGP teams will adjust to this format quicker you you assume but yeah life is going to be di- quite different for every single team as a result of this most motorspeed doesn't have the the ultra restrictive park for May rule obviously that f1 does have so in f1 it's a it's a real proper extreme but at the same time MotoGP trades that off by having practice be effectively part of qualifying so there is there is going to be a substantial reduction of practice and adjusting your working practices towards that's going to be really important i suspect that it's a job for towards the end of preseason testing because it's sort of the most expendable one because it's the one that you know if push comes to shove teams will back themselves to figure it out on the fly or figure it out without practice whereas new parts you just have to try they have to do them you have to run with them you can't you can't just figure it out but yeah no you're right it's it is a factor certainly and it's also i feel like another factor in ducati's favor in a way because every other manufacturer has too big a list of problems to solve and things to prove to themselves and things to try out to you know working out how you're going to manage the weekend differently is further down the list beyond just making sure your bike can go quick every weekend and can go fast in a straight line ducati has both the comfort zone you know we talked about how we you know they couldn't get too complacent and okay stick with the bike that you know but bear in mind the competition will be trying to capture as well the competition's got too much work to do ducati's got some room to be a bit complacent and try some ideas out on its satellite bikes and not stress too much about the works team and it has eight bikes to play with if it wants to go okay can you just go and do some work on how the tire pressures are affected by this or run at this time of day because that's when we need to get practice right to get through now or to do the long runs now just send someone at Grassini to go and do that you know they've got they've as your payment for that massive Ducati sticker Grassini's now now got on the bike Ducati's got so many bikes to play with and pace in hand yeah but 
it's I'd say Yamaha and Aprilia that are particularly famous for going quicker earlier in practice. True. Which is part of the which is part of the trade-off because now that there's less practice, your your performance spec is going to be frozen, not frozen by regulations, but frozen by what you're able to do earlier into the weekend, which you'd expect to to play into their hands. So it's it's a very interesting dynamic. Very, very interesting. Well, by the time we speak to you next week, pre-season test number one will have happened. We'll know a lot more about a lot more of these elements, probably not about the sprint race preparation, but we'll, we should get a very good read on several key riders' moods. So look forward to seeing you back here next week to find out how grumpy or not grumpy various riders, particularly Mark Marquez, are after the first pre-season test. Um, if you listen to the rest of our podcast lineup as well, Formula One is moving towards testing. There'll be a launch virtually every day for a few weeks on that front. There's more Formula E racing coming up in India very soon as well. So stick with the-race.com for all the news on our main four championships and our podcast lineup as well. Thank you for your company. And we'll speak to you again after pre-season testing in number one next week. The Athletic.